0: A Poison Tree. I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not. My wrath did grow. And I watered it in fears night and morning with my tears. And I sunned it with smiles and with soft, deceitful wiles. And I grew it both day and night till it bore an apple bright. And my foe beheld it shine, and he knew that it was mine, and into my garden stole when the night had veiled the pole. In the morning, glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the tree. Auguries of innocence to see a world in a grain of sand, and a heaven in a wild flower. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. A robin's red breast in a cage puts all heaven in a rage. A dove house filled with doves and pigeons shudders hell. They're all its regions. A dog starved at a master's gate predicts the ruin of the state. A horse misused upon the road calls to heaven for human blood. Each outcry of the hunter hare, a fiber from a brine does tear, the skylark wounded in the wing, a cherum does cease to sing, the gamecocks clipped and armed to fight, does the rising sun affright. Every wolf and lion howl rays from hell and human soul, the wild deer wandering here and there keeps the human soul from care. The lamb misused breeds public strife and yet forgives the butcher's knife. The bat that flits in close of Eve has left the Brian and won't believe. The owl that calls upon the night speaks the unbeliever's fright. He who shall hurt the little wren shall never be beloved by men. He who the ox to rap has moved shall never be by woman loved. The wanton boy that kills the fly shall feel the spider's enmity. He who torments the chaffer sprite weaves a bower in endless night. The caterpillar on the leaf repeats to three thy mother's grief. Kill not the moth nor butterfly, for the last judgment draweth nigh. He who shall train the horse to war shall never pass the polar bear. The beggar's dog and widow's cat feed them and thou wilt grow fat. The gnat that sings his summer song poison gets from slander's tongue. The poison of the snake and newt is the sweet of envy's foot. The poison of the honey bee, is the artist's jealousy. The prince's robes and beggar's rags are toastles on the miser's bag. The truth thus told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. It is right, it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, thro the world we safely go. Joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. Under every grief and pine runs a joy with silken twine. The babe is more than swaddling bands throughout all these human lands. Tools were made and born were hands every farmer understands every tear from every eye becomes a babe in eternity this is caught by female's bright and return to its own delight the bleat the bark bellow and roar all waves that beat on heaven's shore
1: Poems of William Blake
0: The Poems of William Blake Narrated by Alfred Costa A Poison Tree I was angry with my friend. I told my wrath. My wrath did end. I was angry with my foe. I told it not. My wrath did grow. And I watered it in fears, night and morning with my tears. And I sunned it with smiles, and with soft deceitful wiles. And I grew it both day and night, till it bore an apple bright. And my foe beheld it shine, and he knew that it was mine. And into my garden stole, when the night had veiled the pole. In the morning glad I see, my foe outstretched beneath the tree. Augury
1: The Unrest Cure about this audiobook Hector Hugh Munro, 18th of December 1870 through the 14th of November 1916, better known by the pen name Saki. And also frequently as H. H. Munro was a British writer whose witty, mischievous, and sometimes masculine stories satirize Edwardian society and culture. He is considered a master at the short story and often compared to O. Henry and Dorothy Parker, influenced by Oscar Wilde, Lewis Carroll and Rudyard Kipling. He himself influenced A. A. Mine, Noel Coward and P.G. Woodhouse. Besides his short stories which were first published in newspapers as was customary at the time and then collected into several volumes he wrote a full length play, The Watched Pot, in collaboration with Charles Maud. Two one-act plays, a historical study, The Rise of the Russian Empire, the only book published under his own name, a short novel, the unbearable Bassington, the episodic, the Westminster Alice, a parliamentary parody of Alice in Wonderland, and When William came, submitted a story of London under the Hohenzollerns, a fantasy about a future German invasion and occupation of Britain. The unrest. Saki's recurring hero, Clovis. Grail, a clever, mischievous young man, overhears the complacent middle-aged Huddle complaining of his own addiction to routine and aversion to change. Huddle's friend makes the wry suggestion that he needs an unrest cure, the opposite of a rest cure, to be performed, if possible, in the home. Clovis takes it upon himself to help the man and his sister by involving them in an invented outrage that will be a Blot on the 20th century End quote. Famous works of the author Saki, The Interlopers and Gabriel Ernest. The Schwartz Metriclum Method. The Toys of Peace, The Storyteller, The Open Window, The Unrescuer, Esme, Sredni Veshtar, Tober Mori, The Ball, The East Wing, And we're going to hear a few minutes of this audiobook, The Unrest Cure, by Saki.
2: On the rack in the railway carriage, immediately opposite Clovis, was a solidly wrought traveling bag with a carefully written label on which was inscribed, J.P. Huddle, the Warren, Tillfield, near Slope. Immediately below the rack sat the human in body. The Unrest Cure by Saki Narrated by Trevor O'Hare On the rack in the railway carriage, immediately opposite Clovis, was a solidly wrought traveling bag with a carefully written label on which was inscribed J.P. Huddle, The Warren, Tillfield, near Slowborough. Immediately below the rack sat the human embodiment of the label, a solid, seddict individual, sedately dressed, sedately conversational. Even without his conversation, which was addressed to a friend seated by his side, and touched chiefly on such topics as the backwardness of Roman hyacinths, and the prevalence of measles at the rectory, one could have gauged fairly accurately the temperament and mental outlook of the traveling bag's owner but he seemed unwilling to leave anything to the imagination of a casual observer, and his talk grew presently personal and introspective. "'I don't know how it is,' he told his friend. "'I'm not much over forty, but I seem to have settled down into a deep groove of elderly middle age. My sister shows the same tendency. "'We like everything to be exactly in its accustomed place. "'We like things to happen exactly at their appointed times. "'We like everything to be usual, orderly, punctual, methodical, a hair's breadth to the minute it distresses and upsets us if it is not so for instance to take a very trifling matter a thrush has built its nest year after year in the catkin tree on the lawn this year for no obvious reason it is building in the ivy on the garden wall we've said very little about it but i think we both feel that the change is unnecessary and just a little irritating perhaps said the friend it is a different thrush We have suspected that, said J.P. Huddle, and I think it gives us even more cause for annoyance. We don't feel that we want a change of thrush at our time of life, and yet, as I have said, we've scarcely reached an age when these things should make themselves seriously felt. What you want, said the friend, is an unrest cure. An unrest cure? I've never heard of such a thing. You've heard of rest cures for people who've broken down under stress of too much worry and strenuous living, well... You're suffering from overmuch repose and placidity, and you need the opposite kind of treatment. But where would one go for such a thing? Well, you might stand as an orange candidate for Kilkenny, or do a course of district visiting in one of the Apache quarters of Paris, or give lectures in Berlin to prove that most of Wagner's music was written by Gambetta, and there's always the interior of Morocco to travel in. But, to be really effective, the unrest cure ought to be tried in the home. How you would do it, I haven't the faintest idea. It was at this point in the conversation that Clovis became galvanized into alert attention. After all, his two days' visit to an elderly relative at Slowborough did not promise much excitement. Before the train had stopped, he had decorated his sinister shirt cuff with the inscription, J.P. Huddle, the Warren, Tillfield, near Slowborough. Two mornings later, Mr. Huddle broke in on his sister's privacy as she sat reading country life in the morning room. It was her day and hour and place for reading country life, and the intrusion was absolutely irregular. But he bore in his hand a telegram, and in that household telegrams were recognized as happening by the hand of God. This particular telegram partook of the nature of a thunderbolt. Bishop examining confirmation class in neighborhood, unable stay rectory on account, measles invokes your hospitality, sending secretary arrange. I scarcely know the bishop. I've only spoken to him once, exclaimed J.P. Huddle, with the exculpating air of one who realizes too late the indiscretion of speaking to strange bishops. Miss Huddle was the first to rally. She disliked Thunderbolts as fervently as her brother did, but the womanly instinct in her told her that the Thunderbolts must be fed. We can curry the cold duck, she said. It was not the appointed day for curry, but the little orange envelope involved a certain departure from rule and custom. Her brother said nothing, but his eyes thanked her for being brave. "'A young gentleman to see you,' announced the parlor-maid. "'The secretary,' murmured the huddles in unison. They instantly stiffened into a demeanor which proclaimed that, though they held all strangers to be guilty, they were willing to hear anything they might have to say in their defense. The young gentleman, who came into the room with a certain elegant haughtiness, was not at all huddle's idea of a bishop's secretary.' He had not supposed that the Episcopal establishment could have afforded such an expensively upholstered article when there were so many other claims on its resources. The face was fleetingly familiar. If he had bestowed more attention on the fellow traveler sitting opposite him in the railway carriage two days before, he might have recognized Clovis in his present visitor. "'You are the bishop's secretary?' asked Huddle, becoming consciously deferential. "'His confidential secretary,' answered Clovis. "'You may call me Stanislas. My other name doesn't matter.' The Bishop and Colonel Alberti may be here to lunch.
1: There may be one other audio book in the play store by this author. I think I'll give it maybe one star. It's just really not not something I care for. It's not too bad, but it's not really my, uh, not really something I care to read. Um, well, I lost it. No problem. Okay. I think we heard this one before, but we'll play it again. The Exorcist 40th Anniversary Edition, William Peter Blatty.
0: It was icy. was icy
1: believe it or not that's it three words (laughs) three words okay let's try Uh, his other book lesion by william peter blatty
3: If all those wonderful scientists in Japan could manufacture an artificial brain cell only one fourth a cubic inch, for an artificial brain, you'd need to keep it in a warehouse one and a half million cubic feet so you could hide it from your neighbor, Mrs. Briskin, and assure her nothing funny's going on next.
1: All right, that was it. Thank you, Mr. Blatty, for being. Brief and to the point. Alrighty. Hell House by Richard Matthias. A head full of ghosts by Paul Tremblay. Well, let's try um something else. Stephen King, no thank you. Legion, The Many Lives of Stephen Leeds. Dark Tower 2. William Peter Blatty, Finding Peter, A True Story. Of the Hand of Providence and Evidence of Life After Death by William Peter Blatty.
3: Tantor Audio presents Finding Peter, a true story of the Hand of Providence and Evidence of Life After Death by William Peter Blatty. Narrated by Mel Foster. There's a divinity that shapes our ends. Rough hew them how we will. Hamlet, Act 5, Scene 2. If, after being asked why the greatest and most intense of physical pleasures is the one achieved through the sexual act, whose consummation is essential to the continuation of human life, and after long and due thought you continue to believe that evolution lacks a purposer, then, friend, I suggest you put down this book, as you are doubtless too stupid to understand what is in it. Anonymous Middle Eastern Sage Prologue A Wild Ride in Search of the Soul When my dear friend Shirley McLean and I were chatting over lunch in Malibu last year, and I suggested I used to not believe in all this shit as a possible title for her forthcoming book, she smiled warmly, flipped me a delicate bird, and replied it might serve me very well to do the same. Well, she might have been right, except that she was wrong, for I'd believed in the supernatural and in a good and giving God ever since at the age of four and in the wilds of the Bronx, I had thumb-pudged a penny into a Wrigley's gum machine, and not one, but two packets of gum coughed out. There. So much for full disclosure. In the meantime... This is me, Bill Blatty, writing in the voice of my comic novels, which is really my own true voice, as it happens, and wanting to share with you the joy of something so extraordinarily wonderful that has blessed me so late in my life, which is the gift of not merely believing, but actually knowing there is life after death. All right, let me say it plainly. Ever since his passing in 2006, our beloved son Peter has been giving me and his mother almost unremitting evidence of his continuing, active, and unbounded existence. And I intend to pass this evidence along to you. For the task of this book, its sole and entire purpose, is to win your belief that human death is a lie and give ease to the hearts of those listening to this work who have lost a loved one, most especially a child. But I must go slowly, very slowly, for first I must win your belief in me, not the writer, the person, me. A secondary theme of these headlong jottings straight from the heart is that mysterious something long known to us as Providence. In grade 3A, in a mid-Manhattan public school, Mrs. Gedney, our gray-haired and late middle-aged spinster teacher, once whirled around suddenly from writing on the blackboard and caught me in the indisputably felonious act of throwing a spitball at the back of the head of a pigtailed, foot-stamping girl named Dulcie, who expanded the dimensions of the act of pouting several light years beyond the ordinary powers of the congenitally sullen, In a fury, her eyes wide and shining with hatred and loathing, Mrs. Gedney shrieked at me in a high, squeaky voice, like some demonically possessed Minnie Mouse. (laughs) You little sneak! True. And I mention this because providence, to me, is the sneaky spitball word you can safely use in place of God these days, without some atheists or the ACLU or... Satanists were Justin Bieber's right to exist wanting to haul you into court or to denounce you as a putz of intergalactic standing afflicted by toenail fungus of the mind. Because to them, the existence of you-know-who helps make the case that we are endowed with souls. So then, fine, so I won't say God or even the Schwartz. Yes, let no one write obdurate on my tombstone. As I said, we are strictly talking providence here, though, for those in good will, kindly notice that I capitalized the P. In the meantime, I believe we have a problem of communication, by which I mean that if this non-existent deity were to suddenly appear atop the Chrysler Building at the stroke of noon, amid thunder and lightning, after darkening the sun, and then causing it to slash the incredulous sky with fiery figure eights and immelmans by way of showing its creator, I.D., before demanding we be kind to one another or else. For a time, most who witnessed this would instantly believe, though soon enough they would be doubting their senses, citing mass hallucination, or perhaps wishful thinking on a stupefying scale, While as for those who retained a grip on their belief, they would be doubted by anyone to whom they recounted it. The exceptions being those who knew the witness so long and so well that lying and self-delusion would be deemed about as likely as the FDA approving the marketing of suicide pills with a mild laxative side effect. So what I'm planning to do in the pages that follow is to tell you a very great deal about myself from my grimy and disheveled boyhood, to my supposedly glamorous Hollywood screenwriting days, although only so much of it as I think may be needed to convince you of my truthfulness and credibility, when I repeat that, without the slightest doubt, I don't simply believe, but rather I know there is life after death, and that the multiple first-hand encounters that I'll be giving you as evidence of this aren't coming from some gullible New Age wacko who wasn't born on this planet, but in point of fact, landed here with the manuscript of the exorcist tucked under his arm. And so, now, may we begin? Yes? Good. Fasten your (laughs) seatbelt. Part 1. A Klutz Grows in Brooklyn. One. My parents emigrated to the United States from Lebanon on a cattle boat in 1921, and from the moment I toddled into the age of reason, my Lebanese mother, a saint in all things in which the heart alone matters, initiated vast attempts at driving me back out of it with incessant verbal blasts about the beauty and wonder of the old country. William! She would begin with her inimitable Arabic accent tinged with a delicate touch of French. William, when you grow up, I gonna send you to Lebanon so you can marry an Arab girl. My God, Arab girls are beautiful. Well-meaning neighbors to our lower east side apartment made now and then feeble passes at advising my mother not to nag the boy too much. But trying to intimidate mama, was like buttermilk trying to intimidate Hungarian goulash. (laughs) A dark-eyed, loving, stubborn, courageous woman, she barreled through life hell-bent on ignoring road
2: signs.
3: (laughs) Once, for example, in the summer of 1939, President Franklin D. Roosevelt visited our neighborhood to officiate in the formal opening of the Queen's Midtown Tunnel, which spilled out onto East 35th Street, just one door down from our apartment building and, I wanna meet him. Mama rumbled like Vesuvius when she heard FDR was coming. My uncles, Moses, Elias, and Albert, told her it was impossible, to which she pityingly responded, you cuckoo. (laughs) On the day of the ceremony, my mother and I, together with my uncles, were standing at the outer circumference of a cordon of spectators about 30 feet from the president's automobile. In her left hand, Mama held a mysterious brown paper shopping bag, but I paid no attention to it at the time. All eyes were on FDR as he reached out from his car with a gold-plated scissors and neatly snipped the broad blue ribbon that stretched from one side of the tunnel entrance to the other. Then, before anyone knew what was happening, my mother was grimly advancing on the president. It must have looked like an assassination attempt because flashbulbs started exploding, the president dropped the scissors in dread anticipation, and a covey of Secret Service men drew their revolvers and surrounded the car. They were too late. Mama had gotten to the president. <laughs> I want to shake you hands she announced, half purr, half growl, and then she reached out and crunched the president's paw in her effortlessly dynamic grip. FDR smiled weakly. Then it happened. Mama leaned over and reached into the mysterious shopping bag, and two of the Secret Service men made a dive for her, (laughs) but they barely got a glove on my mother before she had withdrawn from the bag a large glass jar filled with a murky, rust-colored substance. She handed it to the astonished president. Home make jelly, Mama grunted, for when you have company. As I recall it, one of the Secret Service men lunged for the jar, but F.D.R. waved him off and accepted it. Thank you, Madam, he said. Quince jelly, my mother added, matter-of-factly. Lebanese quince jelly. Delicious. <laughs> the president smiled, it was almost a grin, and shook my mother's hand again. I had to card the man for sheer guts. Three Secret Service agents escorted Mama back to the spectator circle, and as her gaze fell upon my uncle's, her eyes flickered briefly with a glint of victory and satisfaction. <laughs> she was unstoppable and she knew it. Mama's irresistible force was once memorialized in a silver loving cup that I'd won in a beautiful baby contest, and, my God, he was beautiful baby, (laughs) she would marvel when glancing at the trophy, at times mysteriously capping this performance by turning her head to stare cunningly, if not triumphantly, in my direction, while murmuring, "You, mama take "'Good care of you, William!' (laughs) "'I never knew what she meant by this "'until I asked one of my uncles about it, finally, "'and he reluctantly confided that Mama had "'take care of me during the sweeback caper "'by bribing one of the judges, "'thus rendering me the only living mortal "'ever to have won a fixed beautiful baby contest. "'My emotions during the course of this revelation "'being best described, (laughs) I suppose,' as stunningly conflicted, although one of my thoughts back then, still piercingly clear, was that no Everest was beyond my mother's reach. Her page of life had been printed in boldface. On the other hand, my father, Peter, was light italics. Many years later, whenever I would mention him in the presence of my Uncle George, what a quiet man, he would invariably say a pixieish, introspective sort, Papa separated from my mother when I was three, and I think it was all because of a newspaper. Mama had for years been baffled in her sporadic and impatient attempts to learn written English, and Papa, who had mastered it quickly, had a little trick of deliberately infuriating her by sinking into an overstuffed chair in the living room, luxuriously rustling and unfolding the evening newspaper and reading it. Look at him! Look at him! My mother would complain. She was insanely jealous of my father's ability. Of course, I'm pretty sure that wasn't all there was to it, but whatever it was, when I was three years old, one evening my Lebanese daddy just folded up his newspaper and silently stole away. (laughs) I missed him. Had he hung in there a while longer, my father might have proved a paper-rustling coeur de lion, set against my mother's onrushing Saladin. But the way things worked out, it was Mama's boat-race all the way, and the first language that I conned was Arabic, which is how I was exiled from my peers at four. That's right, four. I'm certain about the age, because although today I can't remember what I had for breakfast this morning, or the name of the pill I take daily to enhance my memory, I have almost total recall of my childhood dating back to my days in a crib. and what I can't remember, my mother has spilled in. For all my life she has boasted of my feats as a tot. It all began, I think, when I told her I had dreamed of Christ, whereupon she began referring to me as Il-Wahid, which in Arabic means the one an appellation that soon would give way to a frequent and admittedly not entirely uninteresting variation, which was to cite me as William, my baby Jesus, (laughs) for which, as proof, one of Mama's more incredible brags in the presence of strangers, or of newly met girls I was trying to impress, was, When he was baby, my Willie, he never dirty his diaper. Which, all in all, was a welcome variation, I guess, to her holding out her hand to the girl to shake it, while telling her quietly, You very fat. At the age of five, another sign appeared that I was either the one, or maybe even JC, when I made the fatal error of not keeping my mouth shut about another dream that I'd had. Back in those days, much entertainment could be found that was innocent, with billboards abounding that advertised movies like Here Comes the Navy and Steamboat Round the Bend, and even certain forms of gambling were viewed with a smile of indulgence, one of which was known as playing the numbers, in which the better would pick a three-digit number, the winner to be determined by the entry numbers of the horses who won certain pre-designated races, at a racetrack in New York, maybe Belmont Park. So one day, Mama asked me to pick a number. I didn't have one. But then some days later, Willie, our apartment building janitor and local numbers taker, rang the doorbell and asked Mama if she wanted to play. No, I have no money, Mama answered downheartedly. But then Willie asked if she had any empty milk bottles, which at that time were made of glass, and for which you got a penny each in deposit back from the grocer for each bottle you returned. Mama found five, and bet a nickel, and before Willie asked her to pick her number, which he would then inscribe on a thumbnail with a pen, I flashed on a strange and vivid dream that I'd had just the night before, in which I was looking up at a mysterious man playing a pinball machine. Tall and slender, and with an aquiline, slightly hooked nose, he wore a dark blazer jacket and fedora hat with a brightly colored feather tucked into its band. As he turned his gaze to me and said simply, Play zero five nine. That was it. Recollecting it, I blurted out, Mama, play zero five nine. Well, she did. And for her five-penny bet, she won $37, which would have been great, except that the incident confirmed her, in both her belief and her powerful insistence, to all within hearing range, that I was quite possibly you-know-who. <laughs> Some days later, when the boy Sibyl of Amsterdam Avenue was prompted to repeat his star-dreamt performance, I forecast the next day's winning number to be 789. It wasn't. Yet, I remember standing in the street, watching and listening to Mama expressing her first doubts about my hidden divine nature with my Uncle Fred, during which at least once I caught her shifting a sidewise, doubtfully appraising glance in my direction, as if wondering if she needed to recheck my diapers, when Fred mildly rebuked her by pointing out that had she played the 789 in Combination that day's winner being 978, she would have had a winner. Nice, but this won me scant acclaim among my snot-nosed peers, and made me wishful that I still had a friendship with Frankie, a little girl and playmate of my age at the time, which was five, when we were living for a record-breaking fourteen weeks somewhere far up on Amsterdam Avenue. We would play near the corner of the street making mud pies. Frankie was muy simpatico, but Mama put an end to that little affair. What happened was that during a routine medical checkup at a public health clinic, an awe-inspiring surfeit of wax had to be removed from my ears, and my mother was convinced that I had caught it from Frankie. (laughs) You catch it from Frangie! She wailed in half-anguish, half-accusation, and the contradictory and crushing weight of medical opinion in this regard had about as much effect upon her as a weak-jawed, lame-brained mole trying to burrow through Gibraltar on a dare. (laughs) If Albert Schweitzer had come riding into our kitchen on a unicorn to tell my mother she was wrong, she would merely have roared at him, You sure up! "'You're crazy! He catch it from Frangie!' And the good doctor would have been immensely relieved to get back to Africa and some relatively gemütlich and predictable headhunters. As for Frankie, I was forbidden to speak to her, and as far as that goes, I couldn't bear to look at the hurt in her eyes. Her mouth open, a tiny shovel and pail hanging limply from her hands, There's mud pies that need makin', her sorrowful expression seemed to be telling me. And each time I ran across her, I would instinctively poke a finger into my ear, scrape it around a little, and wish that I were God. This did not happen. Two. Following Papa's disappearing act, Mama was left to fend for five of us my sister Alice, my older brothers Michael, Maurice, and Eddie, and myself. This was actually well below her capabilities, not that we were among the moneyed Arabs. We were what I'd describe as comfortably destitute. Mama provided the comfort, but she did it in a way that was maddeningly Lebanese, which was to outfit me in undersized tattered knickers and then parked me at the fountain in front of the Plaza Hotel while she darted in and out among the intermittently halted traffic at the light by the Paris movie theater, peddling her homemade quince jelly to crusty dowagers and surprised-looking wealthy men in Hamburgs sitting in the back seats of limousines. I was eight and extremely sensitive, but whenever I complained about our Park Avenue ploy, My mother would hold high a jar of quince jelly and declaim, In old country, peddling is honorable profession. It isn't just peddling, I would whine. It's practically begging. But my mother's invariable stopper was to ram a two-penny halva into my mouth and assure me, In old country, begging is honorable profession. Not that quincing with Mama was entirely grim, a fact due to her robust sense of humor spouting up from a soul that was a well of good cheer, firmly grounded in her faith in a loving God, and that one day all things would be right, and much more important, explained. For example, there's that day when we had started out quincing by the Plaza Hotel, but then moved to Radio City Music Hall for the Sunday matinee crowds. Something nice happened there. It was March and windy, and a gust blew a dollar bill straight at my chest. Years later, this would prove to be far more than happenstance or good luck, but rather something profoundly and deeply mysterious, which I'll explain when we're farther along. In the meantime, after the Radio City crowds had thinned away, Mama and I moved on, working Park Avenue servants' entries looking for food especially that deliciously rich, freshly home-baked and thickly crusted white bread, whose aroma in the chilly March air would at times make me dizzy and faint with longing. Once I saw by a certain slight quivering of Mama's body as she rang another doorbell that this time she was going to be pleading to use the bathroom. Nobody answered. And when another ten seconds or so thudded by and I saw Mama's quivering grow at first more pronounced and then smoothly allied into vigorous shaking, I decided to strike. Facing my attack on the time, Mama was driving a car that had been taken on a test drive from an auto dealership for the day so that all of us kids could take a ride in the country. Impatient and annoyed by a slowly moving hay truck just ahead of us, Mama had grimly declared, I gonna pass that a truck, with the result that seconds later we were overturned in a ditch. <laughs> I gonna pass that a truck, I now uttered somberly. And, Willie, you stop, Mama bade me, giggling. How mightily she dreaded my awesome power, my almost Svengali-like control of her kidneys. I gonna pass that a truck. I repeated remorselessly, as Mama rang the bell again, repeatedly, frantically, while, Willie, I kill you, she threatened me, weak and convulsed with laughter. (laughs) Notice the lack of reference to the one, or to baby Jesus, by the way. It all ended well, for a kindly young household maid opened the door, sized up the situation with eyes that were wide with wonder and awe, and quickly acquiesced to Mama's urgent pleas, thus leaving me alive to strike again some other day. Meantime, Mama's sense of humor at times had a dark side. I cite, for example, the notorious and still unsolved case of the mysterious two-day disappearance of tete Papa's mother. A tiny and autumn-leaf-frail old woman with cat-green eyes beneath a tightly-drawn bun of white hair, She rarely ever was seen without a broom in her hands, always brutally muttering while sweeping the floor, which was constantly. When any of us went to the bathroom, for example, when we'd finished, she'd come in, use the Johnny mop on the toilet, and then sweep along the path where we'd walked in and out, all the while softly cursing in Arabic. All of this frosted Mama to the eyelids. She believed that Tete's sweeping was a deliberate rebuke of Mama's housekeeping, Ooh. so that when Tete died at the age of eighty three, Mama took the news with a deadpan expression as, opening an eye from an afternoon doze, she asked dryly Did they bury her with her broom? Oh Tete couldn't speak a single word of English, and as a consequence, she never dared leave the apartment building unaccompanied since with age her short-term memory was almost non-existent, and she feared she wouldn't be able to find her way back. But one day Mama declared that, An angel, I forget his name, had told her in a dream that Tete's problem could be solved by simply putting a chalk mark, something distinctive, on the front of our building as Tete's beacon. The plan was implemented and seemed to work well until an unknown assailant placed identical marks on all the other buildings on the street so that when tete went out for some air one morning she wasn't found until a day later in a local police station where a patrolman had deposited her after finding her dazed and weeping while endlessly wandering up and down along the row of identical markings she was heard some said to cry out the word chara any number of times, in an anguished, frustrated voice. And no, I have no idea what it means. The phantom marker was never unmasked. Papa was convinced it was an inside job, and Maurice, for some reason, was suspected for a while, no doubt because of his sly, off-the-wall sense of humor. But I'm pretty well certain the perp was Mama, for whenever the incident was mentioned, she would glance at me sidewise with a grin that was a mixture of slyness and wicked merriment. Plus, also, on one of these occasions, she winked. Not quite so funny, of course, was the time we applied for home relief. For when the social worker came calling on us, as we were all three descending in an elevator, Mama wound up punching her in the stomach when the woman made the error of asking Mama questions in an obviously patronizing if not pissily snotty tone, that was compounded by a nasal Bryn delivery. When the elevator stopped at our floor, Mama chased the proud, educated dits into the hall, where she ran away whimpering with her questionnaires tightly clutched to her startled bosom. How anyone could feel patronizing or superior in the presence of Mama is something I never could understand, though I dare say the social worker got the message. As for Mama, she actually couldn't have cared less about home relief, for her day's quenched jelly haul was at times substantial. One night I watched her as she sat hunched over the bare-scarred wooden table in our kitchen, which was illuminated only by candlelight, since yet again we hadn't paid our electric bill. (laughs) An event so frequent that I would see more shadows in our apartments than would be found in a hospital disturbed ward for groundhogs. The candlelight cast a moody glow over Mama's handsome and patrician-bronzed face so that she looked like an Arab Ethel Barrymore as she peered up at me craftily and with a sly merry twinkle in her eyes as she uttered, Let's hope that your father doesn't come back. In addition to quinsing, Mama employed still another economic dodge, I speak of her ingenious, locked landlord gambit, wherein, in a strategy worthy of Clausewitz, she would pay the first month's rent in advance, and then repel all future demands for payments with cries of, You shurrup! You crooked landlord! I know all about you! (laughs) And while the landlord worried over what my mother knew, we would live rent-free for anywhere from two to four months, depending on how long it took the landlord to either make up his mind or examine his conscience. But don't think I'm complaining inasmuch as it was actually rather broadening, although I never quite got used to the chagrin of skipping home from school to find the silver loving cup I'd won in the beautiful baby contest leaning crookedly atop a heap of our belongings out on the street. We were famous in a way, for we were the only nomadic tribe living in New York City. There was some talk of our appearing in Ripley's Believe It or Not, and had there been a Guinness Book of Records in those days, we surely would have been in it. Yet another survival Dodge Mama employed, a sort of matter of principle you could say, was never to pay fares for any form of transportation, on subways and buses, she made some adjustment, paying a single fare for herself. She was stout and unable to duck beneath turnstiles or blend into crowds like the Scarlet Pimpernel or a minnow into silvery swarms. Like the Shadow, though, her specialty was clouding men's minds. On the subway she would push me through the turnstile ahead of her, sneering with a faintly derisive contempt at the impotent bellows from the cashier's cage. If the cashier came after us, Mama would swat him with her purse and cry loudly, Don't you touch my boy, you lousy! in a tone that shook with pain and outrage, and conveyed the cashier was either a sadist or a pervert, which immediately put him on the defensive. Mama knew instinctively how to crystallize free-floating guilt. She also packed a good wallop with the purse and understood how to crystallize free-floating fear. You might say she was a master of psychology. Adapting to nuances of the problem, she varied her tactics somewhat for buses, as, having paid her own fare, she would hustle me quickly toward the back of the bus. Although we never got more than a couple of steps before the bus driver shouted, Hey, hold it. Where's the fare for the kid? To which Mama always answered, What you mean? You don't pay. You're only six-year-old. Which wasn't always that easy a concept to sell, as I was actually tall for a boy of 13. <laughs> I did everything I could to make myself shrink, including thinking very hard about the actor Sam Jaffe in Full Gravel, in the title role of the water-bearer in the movie Gunga Din, as he is angrily scolded by Victor McLaughlin while adopting any number of self-diminishing postures, so that I still have a quite pronounced slouch to this day. Meantime, as Mama and the driver continued to argue, the other passengers, New Yorkers, always in a hurry, would begin to put considerable heat on the driver to leave us alone and get the show on the road. It was something like a hijacking in reverse, where you didn't go to Cuba or any place else. My mother and I just held you immobile for a while, until finally the ransom was paid. A free ride, and no questions for baby Jesus. Mm. Yet another fun thing that we did was take trains headed someplace like Albany or Florida. The funnest was when all of my brethren were with me, and we hadn't even a single ticket in the group. Mama would stash us all in a restroom as soon as the conductor was seen approaching from the car next to ours, taking tickets. It didn't always work. The conductor would at times try the door, find it locked, and then knock and call, Tickets! Inside, we would all hold our breaths and keep silent, although once when the conductor barked, Okay, I know you're in there. Alice, forgetting herself, once meekly and quaveringly answered, Who? There would follow the usual harangue from Mama. Some crook steal the tickets, you cuckoo lousy! Delivered in the same tone of voice, I would guess, as when God asked Job, Where were you when I was laying the foundations of the world? Often the conductor, running a bluff, would tug down on the overhead emergency cord, which transmitted a signal to the engineer to stop the train. The conductor would have threatened to put us off, and as the wheels of the train ground slowly to a halt, he would fold his arms, look stern, if not grim, clear his throat, then say, Well? But then, if Mama touched a hand to his arm, or even just accidentally brushed him with it while gesturing, he'd look over his shoulder for help, and there would shortly be two other conductors, a fireman, a brakeman, and some of the dining car crew in the car with us. But when it came to crowd response, no conductor could in the end outpoint a weeping mother and her wide-eyed little brood. Though at times Mama lost, a preternatural phenomenon requiring a conductor with the heart of a nurse in a convalescent home, plus a clear understanding of what it was the conductor was engaged in, which was a personal contest of will, and when the creep was insecure, he would actually dump us off the train in the middle of nowhere. Yes. And while I wouldn't want to estimate the number of times this happened, I will say that for a city boy, my knowledge of gophers and other rural lore is unexpectedly rich. My absolute nightmare was for Mama to call out cheerily on a Saturday morning, Willie, come on, we take the boat to Bear Mountain. The boat in question being a sightseeing vessel of the Hudson River day line, while the ever-present, blood-chilling terror was that sooner or later they would toss us all overboard for failure to produce any tickets. Thus, Mama's sunny Saturday morning announcements always triggered any number of defensive reactions, such as feigning a cold, or even better, a coma, though the latter so terrified Mama that I had to abandon it, and in its place resorted to playing on my past success with 059 by telling her I had dreamed that the boat had gone down in a sudden storm, and then adding with a dazed look into space, No survivors. The first time I tried this, it worked. But then, again and again, I'd be back to spending now and then Saturdays on the cruise boat playing hide-and-go-seek with the ticket collector. At times, they would catch us. And when this happened, I'd hide in a lifeboat while Mama flew B-52 bombers over reason and carpet-bombed anything that moved into dust. The wind blowed the ticket from my hand. Recollecting our experiences on trains, I would spend the whole outing waiting for the captain of the boat to boom out loudly through a microphone, Stop! Engine! Uh And then pass out life preservers to me and Mama and any of my siblings who were aboard. Uh I then envisioned a chaplain giving us a blessing, and possibly joining us in a hymn just before they were to lower us down to the middle of the Hudson River in a dinghy. Anything special, son? he would ask. My mother's favorite reverend. What is it, son? Fairest Lord Jesus. And, lowering our heads, we would all clasp hands and bravely sing it. Eddie and Maurice would be sobbing a little, and when we were grabbed to be put in the dinghy, Alice would say, Who? I was a nervous wreck. Yet, I would look and see Mama by the deck rail sunning herself like an innocent baby seal on a rock in Central Park. Eyes closed, she'd have her face lifted up to the sun in a gentle salt breeze, and she would inhale very deeply now and then, and sigh, sigh. which was also what she did whenever she slid down into her bath after coming in from quincing on a cold winter's day. It means, isn't this terrific? Meanwhile, I'd be waiting for burial at sea. Mama's ability to sail unruffled through even the choppiest of seas was partly a product of her envisioning herself as a dramatic heroine, a dark-skinned Lebanese Joan of Arc under siege by dauphins and idiot landlords, and she exulted in her role of a mother alone. Her favorite movie, which she had never seen, was I Remember Mama, And when she pounced on my big brother Mike one day and demanded, Who write it? Mike moodily murmured, Oedipus Rex, which my mother would then always quote as the screenwriter's name, although she pronounced it Eddie Rizik, which was the name of a Syrian baker on Atlantic Avenue. We didn't see any point in endangering Mike by correcting Mama, or worse, explaining the joke. Yet, behind her brave bluster and a willfully projected aura of total invincibility, I detected at times, in fact, often, a frightened little girl who was forced to wear a threatening mask in order to defend herself from an alien, terrifying world. And without any question, her heart was huge. Once, for example, she received a solicitation in the mail from Saks Fifth Avenue, urging her to open a charge account and shop for goodies there. And so, with a shrug of her shoulders, and no more than a feeling that she ought to oblige or risk hurting the feelings of whomever had sent her that letter, she opened a charge account. Can you believe Saxe approved it? And proceeded to buy sweaters and various other items of clothing, which she would promptly give away to anyone she knew who might need them. But then was stunned, if not outraged, by the injustice of it all when Sachs sent along a bill with a stream of demands to follow, at first polite and suggesting quick payment, but then growing slightly creepy, then ominous, then openly threatening, until finally there came a letter I'll never forget his name from the head of Sachs's legal department, a lawyer named George Lincoln demanding immediate payment, or the gulag. No payment ever was, or could have been, made. Yet, until the end of her life, Mama now and then made mention in conversation to my lawyer, Mr. Lincoln. Besides playing Robin Hood, in her mind, accepting gifts from the rich and giving them over to the needy poor, Mama often did oddly kind things, such as providing free lunches in our kitchen for doddering little old ladies in ratty and ancient fox fur pieces. The poor things, she'd say softly and sadly. One of them, her mind grown feeble, apparently thought that our apartment was a Salvation Army outpost, where she would address my mother as Major Blatty. Another time my mother took in an old and once famous opera singer, Madame Jocelyn Horne, who had fallen on evil days. Mama had discovered her out on the sidewalk of our Lexington Avenue apartment in a torrential rain one night, cringing and shivering while leaning against a pile of antique furnishings and possessions which had been freshly carried out to the street following an eviction order for arrears and rent. Upon sizing up her situation, Mama's first impulse was to congratulate the weeping old lady. But she was later horrified to learn that up until this calamity, the opera singer had been paying her rent regularly for twenty-two years. Mama often had me look up the meaning of her dreams in a collection of tattered old dream books that she might have inherited from Madame Horn, her most favorite of the collection being the one that once predicted you will win one million dollars, before adding the words, be patient. As for my own dreams, the only one I really harbored in those days was that I'd wake up some morning and find myself an Irishman. How I envied the Irish boys, their snub noses, pale skins, and incredible reflexes. I had daydreams in which my name was Miles O'Malley, or Fairfax McLaughlin, and I had blonde hair and was the champion boxer of Ireland. But as it happened, I was usually content to look forward to the now and then occasions when someone would call me a dago or a wop, or at least the Italians were a majority minority. Meanwhile, I would have given a million dollars for just one crummy little freckle. Piteous pleas of, Mama, why can't I talk American at home like the other kids? Left her powerfully unmoved, and while my grammar school classmates munched on sandwiches during lunch periods, usually a single thin slice of dry bologna between two slices of Wonder Bread, I was compelled to pick furtively at a dripping brown paper bag heavy with stuffed squash, eggplant compounded with sesame seed, and an occasional morsel of shish kebab, which, let's face it, would have actually been delicious, but jerk that I was, I was always eager to trade my Lebanese goodies for the dry, meager sandwich, hopelessly hoping, I suppose, that in time I would be able to clog-dance and possibly say a few curse words in Gaelic. This, too, did not happen. Meantime, snub-nosed 3rd Graders would habitually greet my entrance to the lunchroom with raucous cries of, "'So, your old man's a sheik, huh?'